An honorable profession is brought to you by Tech for America, an organization dedicated to providing a platform to solve America's toughest public challenges. For more information, visit t4a.org. That's t, the number four, a.org. Also, welcome to our new sponsor, opencounter.com. OpenCounter builds tools for local governments that help them deliver permits and licenses to residents online. Their portals guide applicants through complex permitting workflows so applicants can understand and invest in their community. Designed to lower transaction costs, increase transparency, and empower economic development, OpenCounter is a vital tool for communities big and small across this nation, including Atlanta, Charlotte, Indianapolis, Oakland, and San Diego. Check out opencounter.com to see what they can do to modernize your community's approach to permitting and licensing. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. If you don't believe me, listen to some of our past episodes with guests like Pete Buttigieg, St. Louis Treasurer Tashara Jones, Congressman Bing McAdams, and more than a dozen amazing leaders at the state and local level. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. Today, I'm talking with Mandela Barnes, the new Lieutenant Governor of Wisconsin. I'm excited for you to hear from this dynamic and engaging leader from the heartland. Mandela grew up in Milwaukee. He left to go to college, worked a variety of jobs before being elected to the state legislature, then statewide office. He's 32 years old, the first African-American lieutenant governor in Wisconsin history, and a leading advocate on issues of climate change and equity. He's a big deal. And as you can tell from our conversation, he's destined to do even bigger things. Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, thank you for joining us on an honorable profession today. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm honored to be here. I want to talk first about your path into politics. What inspired you to run? And uh, tell me about that first campaign, that first knocking on a door, making a fundraising call. What was that like for you? Yeah, man, I'll tell you, it definitely was not a straight line, uh, the path to politics. There were lots of zigs and lots of zags. It started off, I say, uh, college, I was very involved in student government, uh, NAACP. I mean, even high school, I was part of you know, different community service organizations. Uh, but it was once I finished college, 2008, I uh, went to work as a field organizer in Northwest Louisiana on a on a congressional race, and we lost that race by 350 votes. I know, I know, heartbreaking. And then I uh, made my way back to Milwaukee. Uh, 10 years ago, in January of 2009, uh, ended up doing an unpaid internship in the mayor's office, ended up working a job, getting laid off here and there, uh, doing temporary stuff, bartending. Like, it, you know, it just, all sorts of things. Like I said, it just was, not a, straight, it was not a straight line. And then I got back into organizing for an interfaith social justice group uh, called MICA. We worked on issues of jobs and economic development, education, immigration reform, and treatment instead of prison. And it was uh, working on those issues, uh, seeing the state-level impact uh, that could could or could not be made uh, on those issues would prompt me to run for office. And I ran for state rep in 2012. Uh, making the first fundraising call was very weird. You know, having worked, that's one thing too, always 
When people ask, uh, you know, when they say they are thinking about running for office and they ask what they what should they do, I always say you should probably go work on a campaign first. Uh, you don't even have to be paid. Just go volunteer. Just learn it ins and outs. Spend a week on a campaign just to know if it's for you, uh, because it's, it, it can look easy if you don't if you're not a part of a campaign every day and, and seeing the inner workings or having to deal with it. Uh, but making that first fundraising call, uh, you know, it was weird. <laughs> uh, we did it. We pulled it off and won that race. You uh, you're born and raised in Milwaukee. Yeah, born and raised in the city of Milwaukee. Uh, left for school. Uh, like I said, went to Alabama A&M University, uh, finished there in 2008, and came back home. Uh, so my mother's originally from Birmingham. That's a family school. And how do you, uh, when you come from the community, how, did, how do you engage a, your community uh, as, as returning home? You want to bring new ideas. You want to bring promises of equity and opportunity uh, to communities that, that haven't always felt that way from yeah. their state government. What's that? So we're talking about all the way back to 2009, right? Yeah. So yeah, coming home, uh, this was my first time living in Milwaukee as an adult. I, went, I was 16 when I started college. So uh, this is me coming back home, uh, 22 years old at the time, and just realizing that I couldn't just jump into politics and just run for office right away. Uh, I needed to you know, establish some roots, actually put in the work. And I, I think that's where people oftentimes get confused too, uh, want to show back or come back home as some sort of savior. And you know, people don't really like that, especially uh, when there are people who've put in the work, uh, who've been doing the organizing, who've been uh, you know, working diligently to make change. I, I think it's important for people uh, to get involved in that side uh, before just saying, I'm just gonna run for office now. This is the thing, this is what I have to do. You people need to be saved by me. Because <laughs> um, you get a whole lot of that. I always tell people like, coach a kid's soccer team. Yeah, like, do something that's do something. real. That, that is showing people that, that you're in, in, in the life of the community before you start asking people it, 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 Exactly, so I, um, you know, I did exactly what I felt would get me the most in touch, and I, you know, I knocked on a lot of doors, uh, you know, whether it's volunteers or campaign, but actual doors of people like you know, my senator, my congresswoman, and my mayor, ultimately. Uh, and this was after college, after I worked, and I said, well, we got an unpaid internship. It was like the pursuit of happiness. <laughs> so I had to do this unpaid internship. And then the uh, receptionist position opened up, and me on my uh, jobless high horse turned down that job because <laughs> I didn't see that as a part of my path. And it was that was not a good decision, and my dad was very frustrated because I was living in his house, <laughs> and uh, you know, not paying bills. And uh, you know, fortunately, they came back the next week and were like, "Hey, you know, the office knows you. You know the office, and we know this isn't necessarily what you plan to be doing for the next five years. But if you can help us out for the next five months, that would be very, very helpful." And it was the best, you know, decision. You know, luckily I got that second chance because people don't always get that second chance. But, you know, being the receptionist in the mayor's office, you know, the mayor doesn't just walk out and greet you when you when you show up. So whether it was the governor or any other guest who showed up for a meeting with the mayor, they had to sit at least three minutes <laughs> with me. And I and there's a door that separates all that. I could, I could ask whatever I wanted to ask, you know, and I could build those relationships with people around the city, be it, uh, you know, developers, teachers, other uh, local elected officials. And. I was able to do that, and, and I met a lot of people and, and through that job, and it was the most important decision uh, that I made in, in my entire political career. 
that is that's that's a good life lesson for for everyone out there, but especially for our younger listeners, right? Which is it is an honorable profession. It's an honorable <laughs> profession, and get yourself in the door, yeah. do what needs to get done, and show if you show worth, uh, you can. There's a lot of opportunities to open it, up for you. You know, I heard every story too from people. You know, people call the mayor's office for anything. You know, whether it's garbage collection or you know issues with you know that are federal. And you know you hear it all. You get a real pulse of, of of what's going on. So that is how I spent my time. It, it got me. Uh, it, it was a crash course in getting in touch. Uh, you know, it's easy to just show up and think you know uh, what people are thinking or feeling, uh, but until you've actually heard from them, you have no idea. And you look at your career path. There's an interesting progression there, which is you're talking first hyper local mayor's office, trash being picked up a building being redeveloped. Then you go to the state legislature, you're still representing a district and a community that you're from, that you know, but you're voting on statewide issues. Then you run for lieutenant governor, and uh, that is now a statewide office. Uh, It looks, the state as a whole looks very different Mm -hmm. than your Milwaukee neighborhood that you're representing. How do you, how do you take your values and what you've learned and what you're trying to get done and translate that on a statewide basis. Yeah, so you know, fortunately in the assembly, I got to represent the area where I spent the majority of my life. Uh, but in between the state assembly and lieutenant governor, there was still that loss for state senate. And I think it's very important. I, I bring that up all the time. I bring that up more than I bring up winning my first race for state rep because that is another important part uh, in the journey. You know, having lost that state senate race, it, it humbled me. Right, and um, I, I learned a lot of lessons in, in, in that so, race. So, uh, for the for the for the listeners uh, at home, uh, you took on Lena Taylor, uh-huh. who uh, I know Lena. She's yeah. a force of nature, <laughs> a longtime state senator, uh, and uh, in in a primary, yeah. um, and was unsuccessful. But uh, but and it is. I mean, we had Pete Buttigieg on the show, and he was talking about the importance of the losses. You know, yeah. he learned more from his his loss race than he did uh, from some of the races he's won. So talk, yeah, yeah talk I, about I was that. Wildly race. unsuccessful in that race. <laughs> you know, it was it was. I used to say it was sixty forty, but now I'm comfortable enough to tell the truth. It was uh, sixty one thirty nine, <laughs> and um, you know, just going knocking on those doors, still talking to people. You, you sort of realize that uh, you know it was tough. Like even if there were issues that. Uh, people may not have seen eye to eye with her on at the doors. There was still that familiarity that people had and weren't necessarily willing to break. And you know, Wisconsin, we we get a you know we we get a certain way about our elected officials. It's, it's not easy taking on incumbents, whether it's intra-party or or, or partisan uh, Democrats versus Republicans. Uh, it's not an easy task. We get we get comfortable. We start to you know like people and. It's difficult, yeah. Uh, and you know you can't win every race. I thought I could use the same formula that I used in 2012, uh, but that just wasn't the case. That didn't happen that way. And tell me, I mean, normally, um, normally you, you try to primary somebody, you're punished for a while. Yeah. But but uh, you quickly rebuilt relationships in order to run statewide. Which it, is, and that's uh, the thing, you know, had I not run that race, honestly, I wouldn't have been able to run for lieutenant governor. I was still able. You know, in that defeat, like the the support that I was able to get, the people I was able to meet, the relationships I was able to build, uh, it it mattered more long term. So, had I not taken on that challenge, I would be in the state assembly right now, and I doubt that I would have run for lieutenant governor 
uh, from the state assembly. If I won that race, I would be freshly, I would be halfway, I would have been halfway through my first term in the state Senate, still learning the ropes in a different chamber, and I doubt that I would have run for lieutenant governor. And so taking those relationships that I built, I, I kept in touch with people, um, stayed active in party politics in Wisconsin, uh, ended up working for a group called Six, where we did research and policy support uh, for progressive state legislators across the country. And I was able to separate myself and give myself the time that I needed, uh, where I wasn't just home every day thinking about it. Uh, I, I got to travel. I had a very uh, I had a very heavy travel schedule. So I got to still be involved in party politics on one end, uh, pay the bills on another end, but be in different places across the country and see the exciting work that people were doing uh, in states that weren't Wisconsin. And I was able to take those ideas and come back home and, you know, use that as a launch pad and say, well, this is how we can do things better in the state of Wisconsin. And I was able to still take that around as a, as a party official and, you know, still, you know, get to know more, uh, you know, county party chairs and places 300 miles away from home and build those relationships and know people and be able to at least try to be some sort of resource. So I want to talk about that because Wisconsin is, I mean, it's ground zero mm -hmm. for essentially the future of our country. Like not only, not only the presidential race, but <clears throat> what's happened with the state legislature, what's happened with redistricting. I mean, it's the birth great birthplace of progressivism. It's also the birthplace of where the Koch brothers sort of outlined a strategy to to flip a, a blue state red. What are you seeing in Wisconsin that the rest of us need to know, um, either because it's going to translate to our state or because whatever happens in Wisconsin is going to eventually impact the rest of us indirectly? Yeah, that's the thing. In a state like Wisconsin, it, it, I mean, it's, it's simple. People, people want to be heard. People have been ignored and left behind for a long time by, by both parties, but the, the candidate that can come in and you know have that conversation with the voters just to let them know uh, that there's hope and that as an elected representative, you will keep their best interests. I mean, Donald Trump got 6,000 fewer votes than Mitt Romney in Wisconsin. It wasn't some level of popularity that he had in Wisconsin. He didn't get 50% of the vote, um, but you know, it was that 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 real connection that voters uh, were looking for that they didn't necessarily get in 2016 and so we were very intentional in our race about reaching as many people as possible we wanted to expand the electorate we wanted to make sure that we were engaged authentically in uh, communities of color making sure that we were engaging authentically with younger voters and the way that happens is just through conversation is it, it, i mean it's not simple to it's not a simple task to carry out, but the concept is more simple than uh, than we try to make it. Uh, than consultants or political theorists tend to tend to try to make it. Yeah, you go there, you talk to people, you have those conversations. Now, they can go any kind of way, but you at least have to show up. And that is, you can't communicate everything just through the airwaves. You know, you, I mean, obviously that part of campaigning has to exist. But if you look at I'll say 2014, you know, we ran a, in, in having a positive, having a message, talking about who you are, not just being anti the other person. If we just run a campaign against Donald Trump, we're going to lose. Uh, and that was the case with us in 2010 and the recall in 2012. And in 2014, it was just a very anti-Scott Walker campaign. As an active person, uh, I cannot tell you what our message was in those years. And that was a big part of the problem. If I can't tell you what we stand for, what we're running on then I know the, the casual voter who may or may not show up in a midterm election is definitely not going to know. And 
you know, you, you look at the money that was spent in, I'll use 2014 as an example, uh, the money that was spent on commercials, TV ads, and from our top of the ticket candidate, and you look at our candidate for state treasurer, for example, in 2014, there wasn't, weren't that, the vote difference was not that much different given the amount of money uh, that was spent. You know, people voting straight party lines, uh, but you look at who got the actual bang for their buck. I think our candidate for state treasurer in 2014 didn't spend over like $50,000 compared to millions at the top of the ticket to get the same exact result. Uh, that meant that there was just a real disconnect uh, with people, a disconnect that there's no amount of money uh, that can make that connection. How do you how do you connect? Um, you have to now you're running statewide and you're running in urban areas, suburban areas, rural areas. Uh, how do you make sure you connect with all those different communities and individuals uh, in a way that is authentic, in a way yeah. that, that matters? I, so the most authentic thing you can do is talk about the same things wherever you go. You know, I don't I don't ever switch up my message. Like I'll, I'll talk about the same things in Milwaukee as I will in Hudson. Uh, because there are very serious issues that are impact all across the state in the same way. Education issues, economic issues, uh, environmental issues. They're, we're filling them everywhere. And people can relate to those issues. They are, they are the bread and butter, uh, things that people you know, feel when they leave the house and they come back home. Uh, and we have to address it. We have to address those issues in a, in, in a real way. We have to talk about them. We have to be able to provide solutions as well. And, you know, I can talk about agriculture in Milwaukee, too, because, you know, what goes on in, in more rural parts of Wisconsin impact the city of Milwaukee as well. Uh, and I'll talk about what's going on with the high rate of poverty in the city of Milwaukee when I get farther out state, because that's going to impact. I talk about uh, prison population. I talk about criminal justice reform all across the state, because we have to understand that we have to achieve the same goals together. There's not any part of the state we can support more than the other. So it's it's funny because that sounds simple, mm -hmm. um, but it's not happening in American politics. Yeah. And if you look at all the people running uh, for president and the national party, it's all been these little micro conversations, and they aren't talking. They aren't. They aren't employing that strategy, um, or. Or very few of them are. What are you seeing in Wisconsin in terms of how the National Democratic Party and national candidates are engaging? Are they being successful? Are they learning a lesson from 2016? Uh, what's, what's, so, how, and, how are we well, doing? I, I do, honestly, I do think so. I think lessons are learned, and there are so many candidates in the race, which I come to accept as a good thing. Uh, last year, our primary for governor, we had about 16 candidates. There were 10 who ended up on the ballot, uh, and it, it it proved to be uh, a successful approach because you have so many people, and then you have to fight for your own you know little pockets. You have to go out there and find new voters. You have to be able to energize uh, or, or tap into a, a voting block that hasn't been tapped into. So it, it forces the candidates to do a little more work because majority of the people are talking about the same things or, you know, or a parallel version uh, of the same exact issues. So it means that more people are going across the country, uh, you know, not just talking about how awful this president is, but they're talking about their ideas. And so I, I do think they are doing a, I think it's a much better job. It was a two person race 
four years ago, um, and you know that 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 race it was it was different. It was it it, it was it, it was much different. It was you know who people thought was going to be our next president, and there was sort of a, a, a pushback against that. You know, people uh, were upset with you know what they felt is being establishment politics. So. There was a, you know, Bernie Sanders came out and he he had a level of success. I mean, uh, you can't take that away uh, from him at all because he energized a lot of people, younger people, um, was able to get you know people fired up. And right now, with there being so many people, <laughs> so many candidates in the race, uh, that the energy is just there just by the sheer volume of candidates. So. Uh I want to switch gears a little bit mm-hmm. and talk about, I mean, just for the listeners at home who, who may be just sort of first thinking about politics, what's a lieutenant governor do on a daily basis? Mm-hmm. Is it fun? Yeah. Is it the job you thought it would be? Like, what? Like you know, just give people a little sense of it. Yeah, I'll tell you, the role of lieutenant governor varies state to state. Uh, some states, you preside over the Senate. Some states, uh, the lieutenant governor is viewed as a cabinet-level officer. Uh, in Wisconsin, is a very fluid role. <laughs> and I think that's the best part about it. Uh, it is the duties are you know predicated upon the relationship that you have with the governor have a good relationship with the governor uh so it's less of a you go do this and more of a you know what are you interested in doing and so i'm really excited to get to work on on in environment and energy issues because i think that is where we have the best opportunity in a state like wisconsin i think uh, across the united states uh, that's where we should be focusing our our efforts uh, because there's so many other implications. There's the healthcare implication. There's the economic implication. Uh, there's the there, there's so many just opportunities and you know even the, just the need to just do something better uh, as far as our environment is concerned because we haven't been doing things the right way and we are feeling the impact of that. Whether it's these extreme weather events, uh, or whether it's just the you know the the, the level uh, of, of you know, carbon in the air, you look at contaminants. People are just getting sick. Whether it's water quality, air quality, and you know we've been derelict in our duties as a as a nation and as 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 states. And so, with that being said, uh, working to lead our efforts on you know energy, sustainability, and also and, and promoting t- equity issues. And tell me, uh, yeah, and I want to talk about equity issues, mm-hmm. but first on the environment, on climate change, you become a national leader on that issue in a very short period of time. Tell me, what are you, what are you doing uh, in the state? Uh, and, you know, what, what do you see as, what do you see as the future? What do you think we can achieve in the next couple of years? Understanding that we're not going to see mm-hmm. any progress at the national level. So it's all down to the state and local all, level. And so, yeah, all, I'm glad you mentioned, mentioned the local level. Uh, so, you know, besides from, you know, getting the, the, the low hanging fruit in the budget, the 2015 carbon free goal, uh, you know, money for research. So our universities could be more involved in the process uh, to help drive that change because, like I always say, the technology that exists today is going to be different in the next 10 years, going to be different in the next five years. Uh, and also promoting, uh, you know, doing our best job to promote, again, the economic side of it as well, because I was having a conversation, uh, or yesterday during the panel, uh, you know, a friend of mine, Representative Chris Harris from the eastern part of Kentucky, brought up the fact that, you know, coal miners are, you know, it's a real thing, losing their jobs. And I brought up the fact, too, that, you know, yes, I completely sympathize with them. These are working people. 
I can sympathize with them the same way that I sympathize with people who are being laid off uh, or, you know, their plants are shutting down. You know, people who are in the automotive industry. My dad was a factory worker. So I get that. My sympathy is the same for those coal miners as it is for those people whose plants are shutting down, which is why leading with the economic message is more beneficial to the cause instead of uh, saying, oh, well, we'll find you a job later. We'll retrain you once we get to this place. We need to have those jobs in place. We need to have a, rob- a robust, uh, you know, solar wind manufacturing operation uh, ready to go. Uh, or else this stuff is going to be happening all overseas. We need to lead that revolution here in the United States. And I want to make sure that Wisconsin is on the front end of that because we have a rich manufacturing uh, tradition and heritage in the state of Wisconsin and, and people who are who are ready to work uh, in that industry. Uh, and that's where the job growth is happening across the country. Job growth in the renewable energy sector is outpacing job growth in all other sectors. And that's just where we have to be as, as a state. You know, my home state of, of Wisconsin and uh, this this entire country. And I will say also with the local level, uh, because we do have a legislature who is not on board in Wisconsin. They are hostile towards everything that we're doing. We are looking to create an office of uh, sustainability and clean energy in Wisconsin that would be the driving force for the change uh, that would make sure that, you know, whether it's public buildings, private, private buildings, uh, you know, looking to be very innovative uh, in the way that we approach uh, pushing back against climate change and creating a new clean energy economy in Wisconsin. Uh, but where the legislature uh, is will presumably fail to act, uh, we do have, I want to say, 40-something mayors across Wisconsin, maybe more, who've you know signed on to uh, meet the standards of the Paris Climate Accord. And with those mayors, they I uh, represent a majority of people in the state of Wisconsin. So let's lead locally. You know, let's lead locally with the help of the state. That's, I mean, yeah, you got to, at this point, you got to mm-hmm. just find your spot, yep. right? And uh, take every advantage. Yeah, and uh, if those cities, if they can get us to those, if they can get to those goals, that would that would be a, a, a great deal. That would serve a great deal uh, as far as Wisconsin meeting the goals without the help of the legislature. Right. And it also proves you can do it. Right? It proves and, you can do and it. And have a good economy as a yeah. result, uh, which makes it hard to argue to voters that uh, that this is going to destroy their, their yeah. lives. Let's talk about equity. So you're the first African-American lieutenant governor in Wisconsin. Um, there's, I think, the six percent african-american population and so uh you're an important voice for equity uh uh for a minority population uh in more than more ways than one um how do you talk about equity and what are you doing to make sure that that there is true equity in your state yeah so uh with the six percent state population our prison population is over 50 percent black and with that being said regardless of where you go in the state uh that number matters because those are tax dollars. You look at the rate of people who are incarcerated for nonviolent offenses or uh, people who are incarcerated for a uh, lack of opportunity. You know, uh, people who are in jail now for, in, you know, we're in Colorado at the moment, so people who are in jail for what people are getting rich off of uh, right here in this state and many others. And so that's a real problem, uh, looking at the way sentencing has happened in Wisconsin. Uh, the old governor, when he was a, in the legislature, he was the author of Truth in Sentencing. Uh, you know, people who could be, you know, done serving their time are still sitting behind bars, people with health issues, people who are, you know, at an age where even if they try to commit a crime, they would not be successful, <laughs> you know. And 
looking at the rate of people with mental health issues, substance abuse issues, and how we address that. I mean, you know, now the conversation is changing more uh, towards treatment, uh, but we still aren't there yet. We still aren't at our capacity for what we could be doing. We could be spending much less money uh, addressing people's actual needs instead of incarcerating them. Uh, and that, ma- like I said, that matters all across the state. Is is that resonating with your Republican legislature? And that are they willing to look at criminal justice reform? So, I mean, you got some people. I mean, Grover Nork was had his right on crime tour. And, you know, I was he he came to Wisconsin. I want to say in 2015. And I thought that was going to be it. I thought, I thought, all right, we're actually going to see some movement. And we didn't, uh, which is unfortunate. There are people who, who talk about it. They seem like they want to do something, but it has been a very slow moving process. In terms of other equity issues, mm-hmm. how, uh, you know, you're carrying uh, a, a load on your shoulders. Yeah, to, a to, whole lot. To a whole lot. Uh, tell me, what, what else are you working on to try to make? So you look at, you look at achievement in schools, right? We have the... The, our, our, our black student achievement, our white student achievement, that is the biggest gap in the nation. Uh, but again, that goes back to an opportunity gap. Uh, a lot of that, if you look at you know, student outcomes, that stuff is very much connected to, to economic outcomes as well. You know, students who are living in poverty tend to not perform at the same level. And obviously, you know, you show up to school on an empty stomach, it's going to be much harder for you to learn. Uh, if you are, you know, if you got, uh, a lot of kids don't have clothes and won't show up to school, like access to washers and dryers, like some of that stuff, you know, that you just don't really realize. You expect every, the, the thought from so many leaders is that, yeah, everybody shows up to school with the same tools. Everybody shows up to school shows up to school at the same level, and that's not the case. It's not at all access to health care. Um, you know, uh, again, my same refrain, where health care is accessible, it's not always affordable, or it's affordable, it's not always accessible. Students who may be insured through our state Medicaid program doesn't mean they get to those doctor visits as they, as they should, and that impacts the way the students learn, physical health, mental health issues, so to the extent that we can do a better job and there is money in the budget to get school social workers uh, in, into those buildings uh, that can diagnose issues and make sure that students uh, get the treatment that they need so that they can be successful in the classroom. I mean, that's how we, how, that's how we change educational outcomes. We make sure that we need to make sure that everybody is on a level playing field and a lot of those other problems start to sort themselves out. That makes sense. One last question. You are an energetic and optimistic voice within the National Democratic Party, Um, yet you are, uh, Wisconsin is politics right now, is like a blood sport uh, of of real gridlock. How do you maintain your optimism about politics, about the opportunities in government right now? Yeah, I'm I'm optimistic that things uh, can, can change. I mean, we have to be, we don't have a choice. But to be optimistic, what's the what's the point of why even be here if I don't think that things could be better? You know, there are a lot of people who are optimistic about taking things the other way, and they're they're ready to do it right away. And they're in any chance they get to take us backwards, they will. Um, so, with that being said, we have to come back with the same exact energy, even more energy, uh, when it comes to improving the lives of people uh, across this country, people who need help the most. And you know, I, I look at. A lot of, you know, whether it's my background, whether it's neighborhood schools I went to, and I see people whose lives went totally different directions, and there was not a whole bunch different, a whole lot different about our up- upcomings, our upbringings, and I-, I think oddly enough, that's one of the things that that gives me more hope and energy to to do this work because 
if one small thing could have changed, uh, maybe that person wouldn't have ended up in the bad situation that they did. And I think that we have a, a responsibility again to at least provide opportunity. We don't have to we don't have to give everybody everything. We have to just make sure that opportunity exists for people. That's a great way to look at it. Mandela Barnes, uh, thank you for yeah. being an optimistic voice and <laughs> for also uh, bringing the energy that you do to American politics. It makes a big difference, not only in Wisconsin, but nationwide. Oh, man, I appreciate you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we're keeping things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. <laughs>